I too want to add my welcome to the new members. Thank you for responding to the Lord and being here. It is a joy to have you. And Joel, great job. I do want to say for all of the wives here, under these lights, it's probably pretty easy for a guy to forget how many years he's been married. <clears throat> so we've all been there, done that. Caitlin, just, you know, have mercy on your husband. Um, he really does know. He just forgot under the lights. So, yes. So, um, I also do want to thank uh, Jeremy. Jeremy, where are you? Jeremy's probably serving. He went out just uh, in terms of worship this morning. Grateful for his leadership. I don't know if he can hear me or not. But And the worship team, thank you for leading us in praise to God as our hearts are opened up. As we were singing, um, how great is our God? I just sensed God. I, I was just overcome. How great is our God? As you begin to think, how great. As you pause in the time together, how great is our God? And I thought, God, I just, I want to say something to the church. And he said, well, in a few minutes, you're going to be speaking, so say it then. (laughs) But it is amazing to me that we have the privilege to worship one who is timeless that does not have a beginning nor an end, who does not change, who as we slept last night, he stayed awake watching. And that same one walks among each aisle. And he knows the thoughts of our hearts and he knows the challenges we have. And he cares and he loves How great is our God? How great. What a privilege to be able to come together and share his word together. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 32 through 45. We've been on a series through the book of Mark, and it is my privilege to share this morning. I'd like to begin by reading our text for today. So Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, 
Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Think of that. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you that you are here now with us by your Spirit. Thank you that you come and you encourage us and you add members. You allow us to enter into worship and praise of an infinite, amazing, holy God. Father, what a privilege that is and how we are grateful. Father, now we thank you for the privilege of opening your word. And I ask that you would now take our minds and cause us to think your words. Take our hearts and cause us to believe your word. And take our lives and cause us to be changed by your word. For your glory. Amen. Well, have you ever aspired to do something great? Have you ever attempted to set a goal that would say after you finished it, there's success? Have you ever attempted to do something where people would stand back and go, wow, that was great? Well, I certainly hope so. I hope that that has been in your life. We definitely live in a culture and a society that has methods for achieving greatness in whatever discipline you might be in. There are schools, of course, for achieving greatness in academic disciplines, whether it's law or science or music, whether you want to be a teacher, whether you want to be an accountant. 
There are camps where if you want to be an excellent athlete, you can go to sports camps. You can go to cooking camps. You can go to dog training camps. The camps just go on and on and on so that you can achieve excellence. And we appreciate excellence. And we look for that. There's something in us, I believe, as we're created in the image of God that appreciates God's greatness, God's goodness. Why do we stand back and look at something like a Beethoven or a Haydn and just say, wow, those guys, there was something about the way they wrote or a great writer. There's something unique. There's a giftedness. Or stand back when you're looking at, say, the Grand Canyon and say, something is amazing. That is greatness. It's also in society as we see different people who have achieved greatness. And if I were to say to you this morning that there is somebody here of greatness and prominence from our community, it might spark some interest in you, though that isn't the case to my knowledge. I was recently at a scholarship dinner with my daughter in a different city where she was given the privilege of receiving a scholarship. It was an honor for her. And in this room, there were people who were, if you will, of greatness. There were people who had been on TV, and there were movie stars, and there were millionaires in the room. And there were people who had been on the cover of Time magazine, and there was a buzz in the room. And there was a sense of, oh, what have you done? And the first gentleman that I talked to after we introduced names said, so what do you do? And there was just a sense of, wow. And I knew very, very quickly that I was in the midst of what the world would call power and prestige and greatness, according to what the world said. And that kind of environment can be intoxicating. It can draw you in. No question about that. In the sense there's a lust for greatness. And it can be compelling. So as I moved to my table during the time... The waiter came and moved my chair and instantly made me feel like royalty as he cared for the people at the table and so forth. And so being a Greek, amongst other Greeks, I spoke my mind. And I said to the man, I called him by his name, I said, do you know who the greatest one is in this room? And he looked up and he looked around the room. He said, no, who? And I pointed to him and I said, it's you because you're serving. And he had a smile from ear to ear. He also didn't let my water glass or anything else get empty on my plate. (laughs) I didn't honestly do it for that purpose, honestly. But I was mauling over this information as I was preparing for this text. And I thought, God, who would you say is the greatest amongst all of these? I thought the Lord said, it's the ones who are serving Therein is greatness. God measures greatness by a different standard. And in our text today, Jesus takes the opportunity to train his disciples that the path to greatness in the kingdom of God is radically different than what we face in the world. Achieving greatness in God's kingdom requires servanthood. So it is real and true in the world, greatness comes by power fortune, prestige, fame. 
That's the culture we live in. We breathe that. But in the kingdom of God, greatness comes by servanthood. It's a principle that Jesus taught and more so he lived. Because just a few chapters from this point, Jesus will embark upon the one greatest act of servanthood, of greatness that humanity has ever known. And that's when he lays down his life, lays down his life upon the cross. It is, in God's eyes, the act of greatest greatness. But Jesus takes this time to teach his disciples. The path for Jesus is set. They're walking to Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? They know. But more than that, Jesus knows. He will face the cross. That's where they're headed. And it's interesting if you look at verses 32 and verse 33, who is leading the way? Jesus is. Commentators talk about, as they look at this verse, Jesus was resolute. He was set. He was heading that direction, and he was leading the way to his death. And just so that there's no confusion, look at verse 33. Jesus, who was talking to his disciples, says to them, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him. They will deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They'll spit on him and flog him. And he will rise in three days. Who's controlling the thing is what amazed the disciples. Said another way, why were they amazed? Why were they fearful? Because the guy who they were walking with was controlling what was happening. Jesus understood whose hand was painting the picture. It wasn't just left to chance. It wasn't just left to fate. God, the sovereign God, was orchestrating this. And Jesus wanted to make sure they understand that. From the context, we can see they are amazed. They are afraid. And so with these verses... As we go through, I believe there's three key critical points to understanding not only our text, but the book of Mark. I think these verses are central. The three points that I want to make are this. Number one, the mission of Jesus was servanthood. The mission of Jesus was servanthood. Number two, the mission of the disciples is servanthood. And number three, greatness comes By embracing his mission. The mission of Jesus was servanthood. The mission of his disciples is servanthood. Greatness comes by embracing his mission. Let's look at the first point. The mission of Jesus is servanthood. Before his life, in fact, before his life, during his life, and at the end of his life, his life was all about servanthood. Before his life, it's prophesied he would be a servant. Don't turn there, but Isaiah 53:11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, speaking of Jesus, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Before he was even born, it's spoken of his servanthood. 
throughout his life, if we had time to just page through some of the pages of Mark to take a look at what he had done. He was a man engaged in continuous servanthood. Things like cleansing a leper, casting out demons, healing paralytics, calming a storm, preaching and teaching the gospel. The list goes on and on and on. If you look at his life, he was continuing. In fact, as I was studying this week, I was amazed, freshly amazed again, from the beginning of Mark to the end. Jesus is involved in servanthood. He's serving people, including in our passage today. What do you want me to do for you? You know, by the way, the Lord did not chastise them for that. And he says that to us. As Matthew prayed earlier, we have a father who delights to give us the kingdom. He delights to hear our prayers because it takes faith to come to him in prayer. Throughout his life, he was continuously involved in servanthood. And then at the end of his life, of course, his chief and most notorious act of servanthood was the laying down of his life. It really needs to be said that Jesus came to die. He came to serve, and ultimately, his service would be to die. Jesus' mission was to demonstrate ultimate servanthood by laying down his life. Be reminded it wasn't governed by fate, wasn't governed by chance, and this is a critical point if we're going to understand the grace of the gospel. Jesus offered his life willingly. He laid his life down willingly. It wasn't that somehow we needed to just tack on an end of the story where it would make sense. He came and he voluntarily laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. He laid it down. And why was that? The Bible said because he so loved the world. He loves us. He loves the world. And how critical to understand when he came to us, we were not lovable. When he comes to the world, the world may not be lovable, but he loves the world. And he gave his life as a humble servant for that. Jesus' servanthood in his death is acclaimed by Scripture as the greatest act of greatness. And it was humility. If you take a look at Philippians chapter 2, and it should be displayed, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father.
Jesus, who in the form of God, made himself nothing. If that doesn't just fry your circuits a little bit. In the form of God. I don't know if husbands can relate to this, but there are times when husbandly um, responsibilities kind of discomfort me a bit. And I get this thing in me that says, well, why should I have to be imposed upon? Thanks be to God, we have a Holy Spirit that would say, because you are my servant and you are called to serve just like your master. Jesus was an obedient servant. He left a magnificent place. He left heaven. He came to earth. As we sang earlier, he came into darkness. He was the word made flesh and he came amongst those who created him. And those who created him did, or who he created did what? rejected him how's that for being god he came and gave and not only did they reject him they contributed the sin for which it would require his death and what did he do he took it upon himself as our sacrifice 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you don't know it, it's a great life verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to read that again. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him, made Jesus, to be sin, God put sin upon him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, you could stay all day on that. You have become, as Christian, righteous, accounted righteous before a holy God. Is that not amazing? That's what we celebrate as Christians. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. So that in the exchange, we could have the righteousness of Christ. That's amazing. And it's because of his sacrificial service. It's because of his gift. Jesus demonstrated true greatness through his mission. And his mission for sure, was servanthood. Point number two, the mission of the disciples is servanthood. Jesus, of course, put on a masterful display of servanthood, and he calls his disciples, no surprise, to follow and to display his character. Servanthood is intended, Christian servanthood, is to display the character of Christ. But the disciples, not much different from us, didn't initially get this. And as you look at verses 36 through 41, you see that Jesus, again, needs to and does patiently take time to instruct his disciples. Verse 36 through 41 reads, 
And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. Now, I can't truly blame the disciples for saying that. They had walked with this man who was turning culture and society upside down. They had seen him do amazing things. Imagine, if you would, that you have somebody who you are friends with on a regular basis who is making people with blind eyes to see. Have you seen that? By the way, I have a dear friend who his prayer is, I want to raise the dead. I said, what do you mean by that? I want to pray and see someone to come back from the dead. When I first heard him say, true, he's alive and he is on his full capacity, but he's a man full of faith, he said, I want to pray and I want to see God do that. And I first thought, okay. And then I thought, uh, that probably happens. I don't know about it. I'm not in that. But I have seen God do miracles. But if you were walking on a regular basis with somebody who was opening blind eyes, making the deaf to hear, seeing somebody who had been paralyzed for 38 years get up and walk, it would impress you. Maybe this guy's got game. Maybe he is who he says he is going to be. And there was a sense that this guy's going places and we want to make our lot with him. They were impressed. They knew something was about to happen. They knew it was uh, going to be ugly and they wanted to reserve their place. And Jesus' response as the patient teacher, thanks be to God, he doesn't get angry like the other disciples did. He doesn't chastise them. He patiently teaches them again about his mission and their mission. He asks them about drinking the cup and about the baptism. Can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized? The reference to drinking the cup is an Old Testament reference, as is baptism, to receiving the wrath of God. There's reference that when the cup is poured out, it is the wrath of God poured out. Can you do that, he asks them. Can you endure that baptism? In some ways, it's a rhetorical question where they would rightly have to say, no, there's no way. But they said, yes, we can endure it. And Jesus patiently receives their answer and redirects it. He says, you will receive the cup. You will receive the baptism. But there was a uniqueness to Jesus' cup and baptism. For you see, there's only one who is holy enough to take the wrath of God upon himself and pay the price. A holy God requires a holy sacrifice to satisfy that. And there's only one who was holy to do that. It required the sacrifice of a holy one, a precious, spotless lamb. But he does say to his disciples, you will receive a cup, you will receive a baptism, you will follow And as you study the life of the disciples, you know that many of them did pay for their faith with their life. Jesus made clear again and again that following him 
would involve denying self, embracing a cross, following things that are very challenging, and, and may lead to persecution and death. But he also said, there is a reward. He also said, there is a coming kingdom. He also told them, there will be a time where there will be a kingdom. But I don't have the prerogative to grant that. That prerogative is to somebody else. Jesus did call his followers to follow wherever he's leading. It may lead to trouble. It may lead to challenge. I love the military slogan that says, some, excuse me, all gave some, some gave all. How true that is. As the disciples paid for their lives, some of them, some of them did not. I don't know where the future is for us. I do know that everybody here who is a Christian is called to service. If you call yourself a disciple, God is calling you to service in some way. You know that, most of you, because you are involved in much service. And for us, it's going to look very different. I could just begin, and time doesn't permit for me to go into a myriad of ways that people serve. And I sat down. Let me see if I can list some of the myriad of ways people are serving in this church. And as I started to look at the different things, I thought, it's going to take forever. I'll just say one. For me, I'm always amazed at the dedication and time and sacrifice of mothers. It just again and again and again, the amount of time, energy, effort, sacrifice that goes into that. You demonstrate the character of Christ as you seek to make your home a place where Jesus is known, where his love is experienced. Thank you, mothers, for your eye on Jesus seeking to serve him in your home. As we serve Jesus, it's going to cost us. I don't know what that's going to look like. No one has a crystal ball. Jesus knows. It's safe to trust him. As a gracious shepherd, he will continue to lead us. Jesus was on a mission of servanthood. He calls his disciples, point number two, on a mission of servanthood. And point number three, my last point, greatness comes as we embrace his mission. Greatness comes as we embrace his mission. In verses 42 through 45, Jesus gives them now the life lesson. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Jesus is directly speaking about what's taking place in the Judaism of the day. They lorded it over. He said, it's not there. For his disciples, embracing mission means embracing the posture of a servant. And we have to confront our cultural ideas of what it means to be great if we're going to get his mission right. It's going to require that we confront that. He says categorically, if you would be first, you must be 
slave of all. The way I like to describe it that helps me to understand is Mark describes what's called an upside down kingdom. It's upside down. Culturally, it's going to be a confrontation. It's upside down. Those who will be first will be last. There's much work to be done in the kingdom. If you are a Christian, you're called to play a part. I want to give attention to one who, it's an extreme example, but as we are called to serve, God will birth something in our hearts. A lot of you know Tammy Bishop and you know her story, but the beginning of her story was that she started long ago seeking what God would put in her heart in terms of her ministry towards women who were coming out of prostitution. God gave Tammy a vision. Her vision was that women would be able to make sewing a way of making a financial living so that they didn't have to earn a living by selling their bodies. So she quit her job. She took instruction in sewing and began to ask where she would go. All this was happening before the Lord showed her where it would go. Finally, the Lord opened up destination of Bolivia. Now she's gone back and forth several times to Bolivia. She's had an opportunity to teach sewing in a basic center there in a very poor city among women who are seeking to change their lives. It's not very glamorous. She's not on the cover of any magazines. It's not something that um, someone's going to stand back and go, wow, in the world's eyes. Yet, from the women that have come around her, the women who she's interacted with, one of them said, this is the closest view and image of Jesus I've ever seen. And lives are being changed as people give their lives and as Tammy gives her life to that. I also want to say, in terms of another thing, in our food bank, if you haven't participated in the food bank here, I want to encourage you to do that. Craig and Jody and others who regularly are a part of that, when you walk into that and see food being handed out, much more is being handed out. As Craig rightly describes, it's an opportunity to be able to share practically the love of Christ. Thank God we have that here. Thank God people are involved and engaged in that. I don't know where God might be calling you. But in closing, I want to say, one of the things that I appreciate is that when the disciples were aspiring to greatness, Jesus didn't discourage greatness. He didn't say no. What he did was actually encouraged it and redirected it. So my question is, Where do you want to be great? What beats in your heart to make God famous? Where do you want to make him known? I have a dear friend who is a preacher up in the holy city of Pittsburgh. It's the place where the Steelers come from. My keychain is over there. But anyway... Pittsburgh, of course, if you know Pittsburgh, is a place that's famous for steel. And he used to say regularly, I want this city 
to be as famous for God as it is for steel. And his heart burned with a passion to make God famous. What burns in your heart to make God known? What is there? What is he calling you to do? I believe as Christians, God will call us to that mission. But before you can embrace any mission, before you can embrace any servanthood, you have to be first embraced by the mission yourself. Greatness comes as we embrace his mission. It's a twist on words. Greatness comes, and Jesus said in verse 45, I have come to be a ransom. Have you embraced the fact that he has come to ransom you? Ransom means you could not pay it yourself. Ransom means you were a prisoner, perhaps a prisoner of war, not being able to pay it yourself. Have you embraced the truth that he has paid a price that you could not pay? He has willingly laid down his life that you could not do. He has given to you and offered to you a gift. And until we embrace that, we won't have what's necessary to do his service. I invite you to do that. If that's never been something that you've done, I invite you to consider. Jesus paid a price. He offers it to you freely, but you must receive it. And Christian, have you received it today? I'm not saying you have to become a Christian again, but I am saying there is a fresh appreciation every day, realizing I am a sinner saved by grace. How great is our God as we head out into service, we have to take his mission first being affected in our own lives. Jesus' mission was servanthood. His disciples' mission is servanthood. Greatness comes by embracing his mission. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being on mission with you. Thank you, Lord, for your ransom. Thank you, Lord, that we have been ransomed by your precious death, that you willingly laid down for us and for all who would believe you. Father, I ask that you would cause us to be caught up with the truth that we have a Savior whose plans and purposes are eternal, who has called us to a mission that is eternal, and for whose glory will never end. Father, I pray that you would do in this church a work, birthing new ideas of how we can make you great, birthing ideas in us, of how we can make the name of Jesus known through practical servanthood. Lord, do that for your honor and for your name's sake. In your name we pray. Amen.